as we continue our study in the life of David, part two. We've been studying David's life, a man who was someone that I admire, a man who was a man who was bold and courageous and wanted to do the work of the Lord and many times had these great ideas of how to better serve the Lord and would be zealous to to move forward in them. But there were times in David's life when God had to tell him no, when God had to tell him to wait and to wait upon God's guidance and God's provision. In these chapters that we study this evening, we're going to learn how David responds when his plans are changed by the Lord himself. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, Now it came to pass, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. You see, David, he had a reverence for the Lord. And in these verses, we see his desire to build the Lord a house of worship. David saw a need that he wanted to meet. And that's admirable. And so many times when we see a a need in our life, it's a good thing to meet it. However, one of the hard lessons that even I had to learn in my Christian walk was the need does not institute the call. We do not elect ourselves for the work. That's God's job. Now, in David's defense, when he is seeking to build this temple for the Lord, he does ask the prophet. He goes to the men of God to see if this would be a wise thing. And in verse three, it says, Then Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart. For the Lord is with you, But that night it happened that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So now, look at what the prophet Nathan is doing. He hears David's heart. And Nathan, knowing that David was a man anointed of the Lord and 
that David was a man after God's own heart? Said, surely, David, this is a good thing. Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, something to remember is that just because it's a good thing, just because it's ministry, doesn't mean that that's what God is calling you to jump into. We need to first seek direction. We constantly see David in his life. Before he made a move, he would pray about this. But here, David was not seen praying about building the house of the Lord. And God had to intercept the prophet Nathan. So God lovingly corrects Nathan's words to David. And something interesting in these verses, three through seven, of God, what he says, he declares his attributes by asking to David, essentially, questions regarding his dwelling. He says, would you build a house for me to dwell in? The creator of the universe? See, God is spirit. Therefore, he must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Jesus said it himself. So when I'm thinking of God's attributes, of him being a spirit, one of the questions you sometimes will hear a skeptic ask is, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? And the intention behind that question is to trap a believer into saying, well, of course, God can make a rock so big he can't lift it. But then the skeptic would say, well, that means God's not all powerful. Or if the person being asked the question responds, no, God cannot make a rock that is so big he can't lift it. Then they've trapped themselves into saying, well, then God's not all powerful again. But the fallacy of this question itself, the problem with the question, is that God is spirit and God is almighty. You see, God doesn't have uh, physical hands that need to lift the rock. You see, God is spirit. Another thing concerning spirit, uh, a question I'll often pose to, to other believers too sometimes is, how many angels can fit on the tip of a pen? Imagine I was holding a pen. But how many angels can be on that tip of that pen? How many can fit on it? The answer is infinite. Why? Because it's sp- they're spirit. They're as many as you can imagine can fit on that pen. It's spirit. It's not the same as the physical world that we live in. So to try to contain God in a box, we'd be sorely mistaken to try to do so. Now, as I read these verses, I cannot help but be reminded of our current circumstance. And here's why. See, I've been praying about the building, the church building, about where we're going to meet, God. 
we we were meeting in the the Glendora Teen Center, and it, it was an awesome time. And as a leader, you can sometimes worry, well, is that where we're supposed to go? Is that where we're supposed to be? But God, where do you want us to go? And as I read this portion of scripture, God reminded me that the church is not a building. The church is the people. Today, churches are, are meeting on the internet. They're meeting in drive-in church meetings right now. Finally, we're, we're able to do that. We've just recently met on a Sunday morning in my backyard, which is amazing. But I remember there were times when we would meet in the park. And then the rain would come and we'd have to be huddled underneath the, the canopy there. But the four walls were not the church. Those who had the Holy Spirit living inside of them, that's the church. And that's the amazing thing about Christianity. Is Christianity is the only religion where the God of that religion goes and makes his dwelling inside the worshiper. So God here is correcting Nathan, the prophet, and saying, hey, hold up. Slow down, Nathan. Tell David this. Now in verse eight, he continues to say, now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. So here God is gonna remind David of what he has done for him. You see, he's relating to David now personally. And that's the beautiful thing about our God is he's a personal God. He's not a, a God who doesn't desire to speak to us but he's a God who desires to speak to us and that we would listen and to, he, he hears us. He's not a God that we have to offer sacrifice to and just hoping that he's going to bless us. No, that's not the way God works. God is a loving God who cares about even the little details in our life. So he reminds David of this. And then in verse 10, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Now, not only in these verses do we see God dealing with just the personal level, but he's also dealing with a national level. Here, his people, Israel, the nation. And I'm reminded that God has power over the nations of the world. He's sovereign 
today in our current climate, it is true that there is a devil and he has his demons running about tempting men and women, causing division, causing hate and murder and sin. But even amongst all of that, God is still sovereign. He's powerful. And he has a plan to deal with evil in finality, to end it. You could read about that in Revelation chapter 21, but we won't get ahead of ourselves. In verse 11, again at the end of verse 11, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Whoa, this is right here, a prophecy concerning Jesus. Peter picks up the words of David later on in the New Testament. And in Acts chapter two, Peter quotes from David's writings concerning the throne which God would establish from David forever. And how is that possible? How could a a man have a throne that reigns forever? That's because David would be the forefather of the Messiah. That's Jesus Christ. And you could follow Jesus's lineage all the way back to King David. In Acts chapter two, verses 29 through 32, you don't, you don't need to turn there, but I'm gonna read to you what Peter says to his Christian brothers. He says, dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself For he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead and we are all witnesses of this. Wow, isn't it powerful when the Bible gives us the commentary of the Old Testament? The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And here we see that God is saying, look, David, I know you wanted to build me a house. But instead of that, David, I'm going to build you a house and I'm going to establish it forever. And why is that? It's because God's ways were way higher than David's ways and they're way higher than our ways. Continuing on in verse 14, He says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. 
but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, in those verses, he, he's not speaking in David's uh, son, Jesus. He's actually referring to David's literal son, Solomon. Uh, and throughout the Bible, you're going to find prophecies that have a dual fulfillment, which is it's quite interesting when you see uh, something like, such as this being fulfilled not only through Solomon, but later on, in Jesus, be a throne forever. Now in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Look at David's humility in these verses. David was a man, a passionate man and an artist and a musician. And he sometimes pens these words that in the Psalms that you could easily relate with. How he gets frustrated in, at times and how at other times he's praising the Lord. And David's humility here, he's saying, who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you've brought me this far? You see, David has a testimony of where God brought him from. How he brought him from being a shepherd. And in their culture, the shepherds were actually seen as very low class citizens. Men who were dirty and filthy and always smelling like sheep. And that's where God started his training in David. When David would be shepherding the sheep, a, a lion would come to attack and David would have to fight off and kill that lion. And then a bear came and he had to fight and kill the bear. And God was preparing him, preparing him to fight Goliath, which God gave him victory over, preparing him to fight the enemies in the wilderness, the Philistines, when Saul would attack him also. And even for future battles that we're going to read about to come. And God does have this ability to bring us up from the pit that we once were in. And now David, he's looking to a future hope. He's saying, God, who, who am I? And this is a small thing for you in your sight, God. And you've spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. You see, David here, 
He's not just looking at the current circumstance, but he has an eternal perspective of what God is doing. And was he disappointed by his plans being halted of building the temple? Yeah, I believe so. I think probably he may have been disappointed that he was not going to be able to build the temple of the Lord. But his disappointment, we could read in these verses, was overshadowed by God's appointment of blessing. And that happens so many times in our lives where our disappointments are God's appointments, where he moves greatly in them. It is important to note why David was not allowed to build the temple. We actually find out why God prohibited him from building the temple. It tells us in 1 Chronicles 22 and 28, David writes this. You don't need to turn there. He says, I had it in my heart to build a house of the rest for the ark, of the covenant of the Lord, and for the footstool of our God, and had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. And we do read of how David was a ferocious man. He was a man who fought many battles and he had blood on his hands. So because of this, God said, look, David, I'm not going to allow you to build me the temple but I'm still going to bless you. How do we take disappointment in our lives? How do we handle it when God tells us no? Are we able to wait patiently on the Lord to know that his ways are way better than our ways? I can count countless times in my life where there have been pursuits that I've chased after, jobs, uh, relationships, uh, money, whatever have you, that God would tell me no. And in that moment, you're feeling like, but God, this, this is good. This is, has to be from you, right? And sometimes you can doubt. You can doubt that God's ways are better. But when you trust the Lord, when you allow his spirit to give you that peace, he takes you to places you don't even know how good they are till you get there they're so amazing so many adventures that God has for your life because his will for you is specifically catered for you your personality your gifts and talents he wants to use them imagine if you're trying to force yourself into a mold that God didn't intend you to, you're just going to be frustrated. But God wants to do this blessing in your life. And it's not even for your sake. It's for his own glory. He says that. We read it in verse 21. For God, for your word's sake, In verse 21, and according to your own heart, he's speaking of the Lord, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. You see, it wasn't for David's sake, it was for the Lord's. I'm reminded 
that God wants to bless us despite ourselves. And that's so amazing. It's refreshing to know that God wants to pour grace and mercy and love upon us despite our actions and character flaws. He did this with the nation of Israel. When speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 27, when Israel was constantly going into idolatry, God desired that they would repent and he was going to bless them. And he says this, you don't need to turn there, but in Ezekiel 36, verse 22, therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. I am bringing you back, but not because you deserve it. I am doing it to protect my holy name on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. I will show how holy my great name is, the name on which you brought shame among the nations. And when I reveal my holiness through you before their very eyes, says the sovereign Lord, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. For I will gather you up from all the nations and bring you home again to your land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and, will, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. See, God wanted to bless the nation Israel and he was gonna give them a new heart. He was gonna take out their sinful, hard heart towards the Lord and give them a, a, a heart that was soft, that was sensitive to the Lord and to give them a new life to sprinkle them with clean water and to love on them. You know, sometimes it's so, so hard to accept God's grace. We in our flesh, we wanna take credit for the blessings that God gives us. We began to think we've earned our blessing because of the works that we've done or in reverse, that God surely has cursed us for our sins. But God is not like Santa Claus. He doesn't have this list of good and bad. And if you're bad, he gives you coal. No, that's not the way that God works at all. God is omnibenevolent, meaning he's all love. And he's also just. So when God is pouring his love out upon you, you simply need to be open to receive the love. But because you have free will, you can also turn your back to God and not accept the love. May we be so open to being God's love 
even when we don't deserve it. If you feel that the passage we just read was a word of the Lord to you tonight, I would encourage you, receive it and know that it's not because of something you've done, some great thing, but it's simply because Jesus loves you and his blessings are for you. Now in verse 22, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel, your very own people forever and you, Lord, and have become their God. I love how he mentions that word redeemed twice in that passage. And then in verse 25, now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord God of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O oh Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Wow. Look at David's heart of worship here. He's just saying who God is, what God has done. He says, all right, God, you've said it, and I know you're going to complete that work. And then David, he's now putting his endeavors before the Lord he says, his house, God, would you bless what you are already blessing? And that's something maybe that we should begin to pray. That God, don't bless my own work, but allow me to be in the work that you're blessing. God, align my heart with yours. And to remember that God is faithful to keep his promises. You see, David here wanted to the worship God in this temple to build a house for him. But what David really didn't realize was that God had in his plan to send Jesus from David's line so that Jesus one day can rid us from all the evil in the world, from sin, to take us to a place where God, Jesus himself, 
is building mansions, many mansions for us. Now, what that looks like and what that literally means in heaven, I don't know, it's spiritual, but I know that God is preparing, that Jesus is preparing a place for us and it's something we're excited about. Now, in the next chapter, chapter eight, we do see uh, quite a bit of David's conquests. And David was a man known as a man of war. And we're not going to go through each verse in here in chapter 8, but I, I, I will paraphrase. I, I would encourage you to read this on your own time, to always uh, don't take my, for wit, my word for it, but do your own study. But in chapter 8, uh, being that this is a, a character study of David, we, we do see that David was a man who was preparing because God told him, look, I'm not going to allow you to build the temple for me, but your son will, Solomon. David said, okay, well, I'm not going to build the temple, but I'm going to prepare my son to do that work for you then, God. So David is conquering here the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, defeating the Philistines and the enemies. And then these other kings are sending him all these great trades and uh, these items to help build the temple. So David gathers much from many nations to prepare his son to build the temple. And we'll read the end of chapter 8, beginning with verse 13. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David continuing his battles over the land of Israel, but you can underline in your Bible at verse 14, the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And then in verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was one of the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was a recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar were the priests. Sariah was the scribe. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers. So we see there David's administration, the men who served with David in his kingdom, and thus this kingdom now being established under David's reign. Now in chapter 9, verse 1. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. So when they called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still 
a son of Jonathan, who was lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And then in verse, oh, let's pause there for a moment. Now, this interaction, David is desiring to bless a son still from the house of Saul. Saul was killed in battle some time before. And David had already pledged to Jonathan that he would preserve Jonathan and Saul's descendants, that he would take care of them since God was taking him now to be the next king because David loved Jonathan and wanted to take care of Jonathan and his family. So if you remember a few chapters earlier when Saul was killed in battle, the king being killed, the nation would then begin to look towards who the next king was going to be. And oftentimes, those heirs to the king had their lives in danger because if there was going to be a change in leadership, oftentimes the next in line heir would be killed. Remember a few chapters earlier, I I believe chapter four, let me just verify that with you guys. Chapter 4, verse 4. Yes, in chapter 4, verse 4, it says this. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth here, we're going to see him now in chapter 9, but he's this character to note because he appeared earlier in chapter 4. Being a son of Saul, when Saul was reported to be killed, now his life was in danger. So the nurse, knowing that his life was in danger, sought to hide him. And in doing so, in the haste, He fell and became paralyzed and lame and then was put into hiding. And now some time after that, David is summoning from the house of Saul, one of the servants, Ziba, and he's saying, hey, is there still anyone from Saul's line that I can bless him, that I can show the kindness of God to him? And now, continuing on with the end of verse 4, And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, and Lodabar. Now in chapter 9, verse 5, it says, The king David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had came to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, here is your servant. Now that word prostrate, it means to to lay down in obeisance. It's a a form of, of reverence that Mephibosheth is doing towards his king. 
Now remember, Mephibosheth, knowing that he at a time was possibly next in line for the throne, he probably was afraid that David now was bringing him, summoning him to kill him to be sure that no one would try to make him the next king. And he falls before David, honoring him. And in verse seven, it says, so David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Still, we see Mephibosheth's humility. He's probably blown away that David was not uh, harsh with him at this point. And then in verse 9, And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's sons all that belong to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's sons may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Now here's a, an interesting account that they added to the, the character of David's life. We're given this account where David could have ensured his throne by taking Mephibosheth's life, but instead honoring his promise to his friend, desires that Mephibosheth would not only be taken care of by the servant of Ziba and his house. He told Ziba, look, for now on, you're going to look after Mephibosheth, you and your sons, and you're going to make sure that he's taken care of in his household. And you guys are going to take after care of the fields and feed your family off of that. But Mephibosheth himself, he's going to eat at my table, the table of the king, which would be one of this glorious, amazingly beautiful palaces. That's where Mephibosheth was placed. This man who was paralyzed, who was lame, who was fearful, who was broken, was then blown away that this was God's plan for his life, to be taken to the king's house and blessed. 
And in this, we have a beautiful illustration. You see, we, like Mephibosheth, many of us have been lame spiritually, spiritually dead, spiritually fearful, broken, at times possibly an enemy to the king. And when we deserved to be killed for our sins, when we deserve hell, Jesus comes in and says, come, eat at my table. Be with my family. Be loved. Be cared for and preserved despite your brokenness, despite our sin. And that's what Jesus does in our life. You see, he desires to bless us despite our estate. He desires to love you, to have this plan fulfilled in your life. May that be your testimony, that you are summoned by Jesus to be used in his kingdom to be blessed at his table. And may you share that with others. May you spread that testimony. I'm sure Mephibosheth did. And I'm sure he was overjoyed to do so. Amen. Let's end with a a song. And if you didn't figure it out, the song that we sang, Carry to the Table, was taken directly from this passage of scripture this evening. Um, Before we do that, I do want to announce real quick, uh, the women are going to be gathering again via Zoom. So if you uh, ladies would like to get involved with that, uh, please go ahead and contact us, email us, uh, email Ashley or Lisette via Facebook or Instagram to get involved with that. And continue to pray for us. Continue to pray uh, for our meetings. We're going to be meeting this Sunday again as a group in my backyard. And we're excited. Uh, We're excited to see the work that the Lord is going to do. So may we rejoice in the Lord. May you be blessed this week. May you be filled by his Holy Spirit. And also too, if you are going to be tuning in online rather than meeting up in person with us this uh, coming Sunday, we are going to be having communion. So if you would like to be a part of that, but you can't make it here this Sunday, I would encourage you to uh, get some bread and some juice ready, put that aside and partake of communion with us uh, over the internet. And just to remind ourselves what Jesus has done on the cross for us. And with that being said, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, Lord God, your word. We thank you for showing us, Father, how loving you can be. We know so little, Lord God, of all the love that you contain for us. May we learn more of it, Father. I pray, Father, for, Lord God, anyone who is struggling right now with the answer of no in their life. 
from you or a change of plans. I pray and I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would give them, Lord God, just a peace, Lord God, about trusting that you have a better way, that you would give them a surety, Lord God, that your plans for them are for good, to bring them to a place of hope and of peace and of a good future. Lord God, I, I just continue to thank you, Father, for your love, your grace, your mercy. Thank you for salvation. And Father, if there's anyone listening now, if you're listening and you'd like to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to accept his love, to accept his grace, to forgive you for all the sins you've ever committed, if you want to be part of his family, just repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I confess to you that I am a sinner. Forgive me. Wash me and cleanse me by your son's blood. I believe that Jesus is God. I ask that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit. Use me. Guide me. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. you'd like to get a hold of us for prayer uh, for anything if you want to just say hi to us go ahead and leave us a message and uh, we'll get back to you all right we love you we're praying for you and in jesus name Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll see you guys, all right? God bless.